If you have your Bible, go ahead and open them to James chapter 5. We're coming up to the end of this uh, look at the, at the book of James, and I hope that you all have enjoyed it as much as I have. I have really fallen in love with uh, James. I hadn't paid a lot of attention to it, uh, sadly to say, in years past. Uh, uh, but diving deep into this book has been really life-changing uh, for me. At the end of the book, James, first of all, very quickly, is a unique book. There's nothing like it in the New Testament. It's a letter, but it's not a typical letter like you would read the Apostle Paul. We're usually used to reading his letters. Uh, but it, it is a letter, but it's not. It's written in an ancient style of, of a sage to those he's trying to instruct in wisdom. And so you don't see these tight connections that you see like in the book of Romans. I mean, my goodness, the, the, the tight arguments and connections that are in Romans or Ephesians uh, or the book of Hebrews, for instance, very tight. You don't see that in James. What you see in James is utterly unique in the New Testament. The only thing it can be compared to is perhaps uh, the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or one of the wisdom literature where he is putting out aphorisms and proverbial statements and arguments, diatribes, uh, rhetorical uh, instruction. And it is absolutely magnificent, the way it goes right into the heart. Uh, we can become overwhelmed, I think, at times, saying, oh, my gosh, he's, he's putting too much on us. But that's why you need to come to church and listen to how we, how we have framed it the book of James is all about grace. It's not Paul and James were not on different pages, even though they both said different things about being saved by faith alone. The way James contextualized faith alone and works, and the way Paul was, just a cursory look at these two men, at their views of faith and works, you see, they were not at all opposed to one another, but were in absolute agreement. It's just they were describing it to do two different kinds of people, two different audiences, and for two different purposes. Magnificent. So no need to get uh, frustrated or, or worry about James and Paul being in conflict. Uh, that's just critical scholarship trying to uh, undermine the authority of Scripture. And you don't need to listen to that. Uh, it, it has good answers. Let's look now at this second portion. We talked about last week, patient endurance and the inter eternal perspective. This is how James is closing out his letter, talking about patient endurance. Everything he's told us in the letter now, he's saying, you're going to have to go patiently, enduringly through your life with this. And if you don't get it, you'll be destroyed. If you don't have an eternal perspective, you will be destroyed. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. So we looked at patient endurance and the eternal perspective last week. Today we're going to look at the eternal perspective, patient endurance, and our prayers. And there's, wow, this is amazing. So uh, let's get going. We'll read uh, starting with verse 13, chapter 5. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so you're going to need an eternal perspective. If you're going to make it through life as a Christian, you're going to need an eternal perspective. One of the things that knocks Christians off their feet, takes them down and, and, and really can disrupt them, is not developing early on in your life what we call an eternal perspective. And so Christianity has had, I think, and this is just uh, my opinion, but I'm in good company when it comes to this uh, with other teachers and scholars, that we have had an unhealthy obsession with heaven, with then and there, almost to the exclusion of here and now, to the point where people become so focused on heaven, they don't care what happens to anything or anyone around them. I mean, the world's going to burn, so you know, let's just take care of business and not worry too much about uh, what's going to go on in eternity. That will sink you. You were not made for heaven. Heaven is not our home. You see, we've been told by generations and generations, heaven is our home. So don't get too concerned with the life on this earth. That's nutty. You were not made for heaven. You were put in a body, and the proof of that is that your body will be resurrected. He's not resurrecting you so that you can go live in a cloud somewhere in heaven. He's resurrecting you so that you can live as a human being in a new heaven and a new earth. So there's this very unhealthy overemphasis, if you will, I think, on heaven. And there's this, and along with it, what accompanies us is a disinterest in the world. And so you find Christians who uh, cannot balance in any way, shape, or form uh, the, the, like in our day, being ecologically minded. If you, if you say, I believe we should protect whales, and I think we should watch out for burning down forests, and I think we ought to take care of, uh, you know, making sure animals don't go extinct, and right away you're labeled a liberal, a perspect- uh, pr- progressive, you're put in a particular party, and there you're locked in and vilified. I have been vilified because I don't think it's a good idea to burn down everything that's green on the planet Earth. And if you don't think it's happening, just get a satellite. Don't listen to either side of the party. Go up on Google Earth and look. You'll see what's happening to our world. To be concerned about that does not make me a progressive, liberal, whatever. It makes me a good steward of what God has given us. So there's an unhealthy disregard for our world and an unhealthy overemphasis on, well, someday, then and there, by and by, pie in the sky. And the Bible completely from front to back does not um, promote that. If you have questions, fishbowl after church. Uh, Instead, it's not some happy medium either in between. It is being full on 
concerned about stewardship over this world and its people, and full on looking to eternity. That is the eternal perspective. And so today we're going to talk about, um, James does something interesting. In verse 12, if you have your Bible, you can look back. We talked about this last week. He tells us, don't take any oaths because oaths compromise the veracity of truth. And he doesn't want us to start taking oaths because if you think about it, oath-taking, whether you take an oath with another human being saying, I swear I'll do this and this and this, and I put my hand on the Bible and I swear it, or if you make an oath or a promise to God, either one, I want you to think with me for a moment what that is that you're doing. Think for a minute, what are you doing when you do that? What you're doing is you're trying to manipulate or control whoever it is you're making the oath. You're trying to raise it up to another level. It's not sufficient down here of being true. It's got to be really true. And so you've just compromised any kind of veracity and you've undermined relationship. Think about it. If somebody's got to swear to you on a stack of Bibles that they're going to do such and such and so and so, what's your first indicate? What's the first instinct inside? They don't really mean it. They got to swear. Yes was not good enough. And James is saying, no, we're not going to manipulate one another. And then he does something very interesting. He goes from oath taking, which is a Oath-taking by nature. I hope you'll think about this. Oath-taking by nature is an expression of unbelief, of non-faith. And he said, no, let your yes be yes and no be no. And so instead of taking oaths, he moves into prayer. He says, you know, we don't need to be manipulating people. We need to be praying. We don't need to compromise our relationship with others. We need to fortify, listen, fortify our relationship with God. And you can only do that in prayer. The second week of journey, second week, we start what we call 21 days of prayer. And we teach, we help each other learn how to pray. We use the Lord's Prayer and we go through it and we can show you how to pray through the Lord's Prayer in 15 minutes. I'm begging you, learn how to, if you don't want to go through the journey, come talk to me. I'll show you how to do it. It is not hard. And you can pray an effective, good prayer in just a few minutes. Most Christians don't pray at all. They throw up things here and there, like, you know, just pitching stuff up in the air. But he's not talking about this. He's talking about earnest prayer. So let's look at three things this morning. One is the rhythm of life. I'll do this quickly. Secondly, the prayer that is offered in faith, the prayer of faith in some of your Bible translations. And then finally, he closes out with a very encouraging word about ordinary people, ordinary prayer, and extraordinary uh, results. So let's look, first of all, at this rhythm of life. Are any of you suffering hardship? In Pray. Are any of you happy? In other words, things are going well. Sing praises. Are any of you sick? This is a word that means physically sick, but it can also mean other kinds of sickness. 
mental distress, uh, psychological issues, whatever, call the elders of the church and they'll anoint you with oil and pray. So what is, what is he doing? At the end of his letter, James is reaching back to the very beginning of the letter in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into trials, temptations, hardships, troubles. He is not, not telling you, be joyful. He is not telling you, act joyful. He uses a very specific word in Greek, to count it as joy. In other words, you're to consider these hardships, these bad things that come to our lives. Some of them include suffering, and some of them are just trials. I mean, you're not necessarily suffering, but he's saying to us, whatever is coming into your life, you as a Christian are to count that as joy, knowing that it is for your good and God's glory. And then later, just a few verses later, he says, and when you are in a test or trial, don't blame God. And this, as a pastor, I'll tell you, this is, I have nothing but trouble with people because something bad happens and immediately they want to blame God. And God is not to blame. If, you're, if you think and you're, you've got some idea about God's sovereignty and all, that includes his guilt and his culpability with respect to evil, you need to come in the fishbowl after church. Because that is a bad, bad theology. Well, isn't God sovereign? Yes. Doesn't he control all things? Absolutely. But there's more. And James says, don't be blaming God. These, these, these sufferings in this world are you, your problem. They're because of you, you and all of you, all y'all, like we say in Texas. All y'all's problem. It's been going on for thousands of years, and all y'all have been doing this, and all y'all need to go and, you know, do the other thing. Trust the Lord. Okay, so he's saying, and he uses three words here. I'm not going to get into the uh, uh, a lexical uh, definition, but the three words that he uses for hardship, Happiness and sickness are general verbs. They're just general terms. He's not being highly specific. He's being highly general. The word for suffering is just any kind of suffering, any kind of hardship, any kind of trouble that comes into your life. You get a flat tire, hardship. You get cancer, hardship. You lose your marriage, you lose your job, you lose your, a child, you lose whatever. Hardship. You lose a spouse, that's hard. They have different levels, but he uses a word. Thank God he uses a word that could cover anything. The full range of suffering. For happiness, he uses an amazing word. It's a general word, another general verb. And it means, uh, literally, it means to, to, re, uh, to, to lift up one's heart again. In other words, it's encouragement. Are you encouraged? Is something going on in your life that is leading to or promoting well-being in your life? Things are going well. The stock market hits 29,000. And we all go, hooray, except for those who don't have any stock. And they're going, darn, I missed it. You know? No, come on. 
whatever, whatever is bringing joy, and we all have that. Nobody is, except if you have a pathological problem, major depression or uh, a bipolar disorder or whatever, if you have that, that needs treatment. And you know what those lows are, but almost no one is always completely down all the time. There are times of good and cheer and well-being in our lives. And he said, when that's going on, sing. So he's saying, pray and sing. Because life has a rhythm. And all of you know that. You can be the smallest. We've got some young, young people here today. You can be a young person, a little kid. And you know what it is to have good days and bad days. We all know that. From the time we're little... We know what the rhythm of life is. And James is saying in times of hardship, pray. In times of happiness, sing praises. He uses the word uh, salos, uh, which is uh, the verbal form of salmos, which is the noun form of psalms. He's saying hymn, hymn yourself. Give vent to, your, to, to, your, to, to, to the joy. And then he uses the word sickness. Again, it's a, uh, a pretty general word, a verb that means to be sick. But he's, while it speaks specifically of being physically sick, you could be physically ill, it also is broad enough, thankfully, to encompass all kinds of, of mal disease. Anything that's bad or wrong with you. And so it could encompass any of those. To sing. What is the point? Why is he saying that in the rhythm of life, do these things? He's telling you and he's telling me, do these things for one reason. It's not that complicated, folks. One reason. So that you will stay in a relationship with God. So that you will not withdraw. And you say, well, you know, he didn't answer my prayers. Things are going bad for me. So... I'm enough with you. I'm not going to even talk to you. I'm not going to even address you. In fact, I'm going to be mad at you. I'm not even going to be mad at you. I'm going to be indifferent to you. And all of you know that indifference is the highest form of hatred that you can express towards anybody or anything. Hatred's the opposite of love, but indifference is the maximum of hate. It's, it's, not, it's depersonalizing, delegitimizing whatever it is. You are throwing your, your, your indifference is not indifference. It's powerful and aggressive. It's aggressively telling God, no. You're telling God, no, no to you. I'm not indifferent to you. I hate you. Now, if you think God gets upset by that, you just don't understand John 3.16. The scripture that every Christian knows. God, he doesn't get upset at that. It breaks his heart, for goodness sakes, for his children to turn away from him. How do you feel when your children turn away from you? I have two sons. They're both in their late 30s now. So you know what I've been through. I guess none of you have teenagers yet. Or maybe you've never been a teenager. Uh, it's hard. 
when your kids become indifferent, rebellious? What do you think it's like for God? I love my kids imperfectly. He loves us perfectly. And yet we have the temerity to be indifferent to him. Wow. James is saying, don't do that. Run to him. Go to him. Yes, you may rail at him. You may lament. You may complain. The Psalms are full of that. But at least you're in relationship with him. Do not turn away. And Christians turn away because they don't have a good theology of the eternal perspective. They don't get it. The eternal's perspective is not then and there or here and now. The eternal's perspective connects all of that. It's your life doesn't is not terminated when you die. It continues. The world continues. Things keep going. And so you have to do that mental gymnastics in your head where you extend the way you think about your life. And the Bible is full of that. He told Adam and Eve, don't eat from the tree because the day you eat, what will happen? You will surely die. Now, they didn't die. They kept living, but they eventually died. It took them almost a thousand years, but they eventually died. One of the reasons why those numbers are so big in the book of Genesis is to show us the power of life. So, don't turn from him, turn to him. James has reiterated that throughout his letter. He's doing it again here. He did it in the second verse, folks. He's doing it at the end again. He's telling you, turn to him. Count it all joy. Run to Jesus when you're having trouble. I mean, who would you rather have in your sinking ship of a life than the one who created this universe? So, well, but he's not doing it like right this second. Well, go to McDonald's if you want something right this second. You know, but if you're going to go to it, if, if you're thinking about eternity, uh, who's going to say, well, you know, let's go to McDonald's? No, I'm, I want to wait and see what kind of delicacies God is preparing for me and one, the foretaste, the, the bite, the little taste you get is here. That's why our, our Protestantism, our form of Protestantism, very robust when it comes to the Holy Sacrament because we do believe that he is present in this bread and in this wine. We believe he's there by the power of his Holy Spirit. It doesn't change into flesh and blood. No, none of that. We don't do any of those exercises, gymnastics in our mind. We just come to it and say, to live, I need this. That's the eternal perspective. Wow. Then he goes on, he talks about prayer. Let's do this very quickly. And, and uh, the prayer of faith. What does it mean to pray? Pray. Any of you sick? Pray. And the prayer of faith, the prayer offered in faith, will heal the sick and raise them up. Now, I've prayed for people, I've prayed for myself, and I've not gotten well. If you don't have an eternal perspective, you'll say, oh, see, that's not true. No, with the eternal perspective, you know, you get healed. When? Sometimes here, sometimes there. Sometimes now, sometimes then. But every Christian will be healed. Every, that's what the resurrection is saying. Not healed in some 
some ethereal way, no real healing. The absolute destruction of death and sickness and disease. And look what he says. And the Lord, pray, and the Lord will raise them up. James and all of the writers of the Bible um, always have in view, when they're talking about faith, they're not, think, they're not talking about some underlying power or strength or ability that you have. We pray for more faith. Oh, God, if you would just give me faith. It is not about that. You will be shipwrecked if you think faith is that. Faith is not at all. A.W. Tozer said faith doesn't even consider itself. It's not even concerned with itself. It is only concerned with the object of its faith. And the more that we focus on God, then Jesus said, even faith like a mustard seed will move a mountain. He was teaching them. They asked for more faith. He said, you don't need more faith. You need faith like this. Tiny, little, nothing, a speck. You need a magnifying glass to see it. It can be small, it can be paltry, it can be weak, but put it in me and you move mountains. Wow. And the church, for some crazy reason, well, I know the reason, it had to do with money, and uh, we can talk about that in the fishbowl as well. Uh, I long for the days that we can start selling indulgences. Huh? Huh? What do you think? You want this Holy Communion? Let's see your checkbook. We'd have our building paid off in no time. Oh, God help us. If it weren't so sad, it would be funny that we think we can barter with God and trade something for the body and the blood of his own son. How dare we come to him with anything in our hand and say, here, I'll do this for you. You do this for me. I'll scratch your back. You scratch mine. No, you offer up. Faith is directed all. It's all about him. Can you put your faith in God? Well, you don't know. I've suffered. I had this bad thing happen. Can you put your faith in God? For goodness sakes, you're going to lose whatever that good thing was that you lost. Unless you trust him. If you trust him, they're gone. And you better just get used to that. And all your hard work, all your career, all your loves, all your sacrifices, all your money, all of you, everything about you, gone, gone, gone. No wonder our world is drowning in hopelessness. And the most popular thing on television is keeping up with the Kardashians. Because we want it so badly, thinking that we can have that. Now, ladies, if you want to be married to Kanye West, good luck with that. Money, power, beauty, all goes away. Only Jesus Christ and the Lord will raise them up. The Lord will raise them up. 
drop your anchor there, my friends, can never be taken away. Now, he does something I think is pastoral. He's a good pastor, this guy, James. He says, look, if any of you have sinned, he talks about sickness in conjunction with sin, because why? Because the minute we get sick, the minute we're in a car accident, the minute we think something bad happens to us, we immediately, our mind goes where? What did I do? Why is this happening? And so James doesn't really make a big argument for why that's bad theology. We can talk about that in the fishbowl as well. What he does do, he says, okay, so you sinned? Confess. Confess your sin. Go find someone to confess to. This is another value of the journey. In the journey, we keep everything confidential. If, if you come in the journey, if you're in a journey group, or if you're in any discipleship, you need to know that that person that you're talking to is absolutely confidential. They're going to hold that in and be with you. They're not going to go, oh my goodness, wow, you did that? Ew. No, they're going to come in close. They're going to go with you through it. That's why we call it the journey. They're going to go help you. And hopefully they'll be honest enough with you that you help them back with their junk. If you're not in a relationship with that, and you can only be in a relationship like that with a few people, they're rare. I have only a few in my life that I can do that with. A couple of them are in this room. Okay? If you don't have that, there's something cathartic, something healing to be able to sit down with someone and tell them, I'm struggling with this. And that person looks at you and says, wow, you too? Now there's two. And maybe you're lucky enough to have a third. And that person gets in there and says, you too? Yeah, me too. And then you start massaging the truth of the gospel down into your heart. And that's why a rope of three strands is strong. And finally, let's look at ordinary people. I'd like to say more about that, but again, don't have time. Ordinary people, and then about a year later, we looked at Elisha. These two men are remarkable. One of the few places in the Bible where you see any miracles. You know, the Bible, there's only five places in Scripture where there are these little spurts of miracles. The rest of the Bible is miracle-free. There's no miracles except these few little, and they're there for a reason. I can talk to you about that in the fishbowl too. See, we, we could spend all day in there, couldn't we? I won't make you do that. Ordinary people. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power, he says. It produces wonderful results. And then he says, Elijah was like us. He does, I love this about the scripture, folks. He doesn't say, you be like Elijah. That would be awful, wouldn't it? Be like Elijah. I don't want to be like, I don't want to wear that kind of clothes and eat bugs. I don't want to be like Elijah. No, what he's saying is Elijah's like me. Brilliant. Brilliant. This man, you've got to love James. 
Elijah was like us, yet he prayed, and here's what he prayed for. He prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years, and it didn't. My goodness. And then he prayed again, and it did rain. The earnest prayer of a righteous person. Look, prayer is not, what James is saying is prayer is not dependent on the, the, the person's personal righteousness. He is saying that person is righteous. And he's saying that person is righteous in several ways. One is they are righteous by being imputed righteousness. In other words, they've been given righteousness by God. James understood that. It was accepted by him. But righteousness was also demonstrated by James, or by uh, Elijah, excuse me. Just the way faith is demonstrated, or works is demonstrated by faith. They go together, and righteousness that Christ has put in us through imputation, or just giving it to us by grace, is then worked out in our prayers and in our uh, relationship with God. Drought, rain, crops, what he says here, the earth became fruitful again. These are used throughout your Bible as metaphors for life. In other words, what life looks like, and this is why you need to understand the rhythms of life. As the Bible describes life, it always comes out of where? Where does life always come out of? It comes out of tohovabohu, comes out of chaos, the formless, the void of Genesis chapter 1. There's emptiness, and he fills it. He orders it. There's darkness. He puts light into the darkness, and it dispels because darkness is nothing. He puts something into the darkness, and it dispels the darkness, so life in the Bible is always needs to be understood as life coming out of drought, out of dryness, to rain, to fruitfulness. It comes life. The very meaning of life in the Bible is death, then life, then rebirth, then renewal. And so James is saying your prayers of a righteous person, a person who is both at the same time righteous by God saying you're righteous and righteous in that you will turn to him and pray on the basis of that righteousness, not on the basis of how to good, what a good person you are. In John Calvin's famous words, good luck with that. Good luck with your being a good person. We all know we can't be good enough. We need someone to be righteous for us. And then we enter in his righteousness. How does that happen? On the cross, my goodness, folks. Christianity 101, Jesus became a man, went to the cross, died for us, died as us, as our substitute. The atonement, the very first thing that liberal Christianity wants to do away with is the blood and the blood of the cross. No, we're not going to let go of that. He died a real death on a real cross, not only for us, but as us. He took our place up there. 
He, Him, Jesus, He who knew no sin, never knew a sin, was made to be sin, made to be the sin offering for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you see how James and Paul do not in any way, shape, or form contradict one another? They affirm each other. And if you want to have righteousness and you want God to listen to your prayers, then you don't have to get better and be a good, better person and become gooder. You better become more dependent, more needy, more broken, more low, the way up is down. You go to Jesus. You go to the cross. You go to the, the atonement. You go there and you throw yourself. I don't understand why my life is this way, but here I am, and I will not leave till you bless me. Like Jacob, that's the kind of tenacity that we have. We hold on to him no matter what. Let's pray. Father, uh, Please help us to trust you. I pray that we will here at the end of this book I'll learn to trust you. And we love you and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that endures forever. Amen.